Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians, where Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have learned while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. This podcast is intended for medical professionals. The information is to be used in the context of your own clinical judgment, and those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and even though the magic of podcasting may make it seem like we're speaking directly in your ears, this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, Dr. Bradley Block. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we talk to Dr. Nancy Yen Shipley, an arthroscopy and sports fellowship trained orthopedic surgeon in Portland, Oregon. She tells us about the common acute injuries that she sees when sports side and how a non-orthopedic surgeon can actually help to work those up and decide what needs to go to the ER and what can wait for follow-up and what specifically we need to look for to help us make those decisions. She talks about some of the common consults that she sees in the office and how we shouldn't just get everyone an MRI as it usually isn't necessary and frequently can be misleading. We also talk about an inflammatory article from the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008 that said arthroscopy doesn't work. So how does someone who does a fellowship in arthroscopy respond to that? It was very enlightening what she had to say about that. We also talk about the truth behind glucosamine. Does it work? Or is it just the placebo effect? And then some exercise recommendations that she gives to our patients that all of us could benefit from. This and all episodes are produced by Karin Gilfrey, professional voiceover artist, and she can be found at C-A-R-I-N-G-I-L-F-R-Y.com. And now, Dr. Nancy Yen Shipley. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we have Dr. Nancy Yen Shipley, a fellowship-trained sports orthopedic surgeon who is also an active blogger. Uh, you can find her at nancyyenshipleymd.com. And she's here to talk to us about things that all physicians should know about orthopedic surgery, specifically related to what she is fellowship trained in. So Dr. Yen Shipley, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, first, can you just give us a quick uh, summary bio of your training? Absolutely. So um, as you said, I am a fellowship trained orthopedic surgeon. My fellowship training was in sports medicine and arthroscopy. Um, I have been in uh, practicing here in Portland for seven years, and um, I went to medical school at Drexel in Philadelphia, followed by residency in orthopedic surgery at um, Virginia Commonwealth University, and that was down in Richmond, Virginia. I stayed an extra year in Richmond, Virginia, and went to um, uh, orthopedic research of Virginia for my fellowship training in sports medicine and arthroscopy. So you spent some time on the East Coast before going back to the West Coast. That's right. Yeah. And uh, there were a whole bunch of Californians out there because there are just too many Californians and, and you know, a whole bunch of us go out to the East Coast and then we kind of bitch about the weather and about how California is wonderful um, and everybody wants to go back. So 
<laughs> there's a little bit, sometimes some of the East Coasters were a little annoyed with us. And um, oddly, I, I did come back West, but I didn't end up going back to California. And Philly, uh, I'm a, I'm, I live in New York, but I'm a big fan of Philly. I went to college there. And yeah, I think Philly is a very underrated and underappreciated city. Oh, I absolutely agree. I, I really, really loved living there. It was a culture shock in the beginning coming from Southern California and a weather shock, but, um, but it really grew on me and I have a lot of fond feelings for the city. Oh yeah. Philly, Philly sports fans famous for booing Santa Claus. And now the Flyers have that obscene mascot gritty um, out of someone's meth addled nightmare. Um, right. (laughs) Um, so, uh, hockey mascot, sports injuries. There's the segue. So um, one of the things that that I like to talk about on the podcast are um, things that every physician should know. So when we go through medical school, we learn a lot of the basics, you know, the the steps of the Krebs cycle, but I never rotated through orthopedic surgery. So I know very little about it, but uh, as a physician, I may be put in situations where I'll need to know something about it. So mm-hmm. for instance, if, if one of my kids were in a soccer game and someone got hurt, I'm, mm-hmm. they're going to turn to me and say, hey, you're a doctor. What, what, what do we do? And uh, unless they're having a nosebleed or broke their nose or need their tonsils out, I'm, I'm not really going to be sure what to do if it's anything orthopedic related other than, I don't know, rest ice and elevated. So let's talk about acute injuries that, that you see and that we might encounter in those situations. So, so what are the most common, well, actually first let's talk about what are the, as a, as a, in sports and arthroscopy, what are the joints that you treat? So, um, I personally work quite a bit on the shoulders and the knees. That's probably my bread and butter. Um, I, of, of those two joints, I'm probably like 60, 40, um, a little more heavily weighted in the shoulder. Um, but I also do some bread and butter fracture care. Um, I take call at my hospital. I'm in private practice and I take a couple calls a month. And so I also treat fractures of the wrist, the elbow, the ankle, the patella, um, and hip fractures. So um, my elective practice is mostly shoulders and knees, but my, um, my general orthopedic practice kind of encompasses a number of different areas. So let's, let's start with the shoulder then. So mm-hmm. if, if someone has an acute injury of the shoulder, how, as the physician, should we help to triage, can we help to triage the patient, right? How do we determine, well, this is something that needs to go to the emergency room right now versus right. this is something that can, you can follow up with an orthopedic surgeon as an outpatient. How, how do I help, aside from bone sticking out of the skin? So, you know, the most common injuries that you're going to see, like, say, let's take football, for example, right? You know, um, say you're at a game or you, you happen to be field side, your kid's playing football. Um, most commonly, you're going to see sprains and strains. And um, I know you asked me about the shoulder, but I'll kind of maybe also float into more generalities as well. Um, but Absolutely. Really That'll make sh- it simpler to, to remember. So just some simple sure. rules. Sure. Um, I think that, um, you know, one of the things is, is to go back to basics, right? You know, so there may be a sprain or a strain, 
Um, maybe they've had a, if there's a dislocation, there may be obvious deformity, right? Um, they may have a fracture, um, but deformity, I think obviously, um, should go to the ER, right? And I'll talk a little bit about, you know, some, some quick and easy things that might be that, uh, you know, any physician may be able to do field side or on, on the scene that could help that. Um, but with, with fractures, for example, if an individual cannot bear weight on that extremity, so like lower extremity, their ankle hurts so much, they cannot take three steps, then um, that probably deserves an x-ray. Um, they may not need to, if it doesn't look obviously deformed, they may not need to go to the ER right then, but if the pain remains the same, then you might want to tell them, hey, you should probably go to the ER, the urgent care tomorrow, and let's get some x-rays. Um, if there is an obvious deformity, there are certain injuries that, um, dislocations, for example, that, you know, depending on the physician, they may or may not be comfortable attempting a reduction. Um, but let's use shoulder dislocations as an example. So, so these high school kids, we often see shoulder dislocations in football. Um, most of the time, this is going to be an anterior dislocation. So, so humeral head is anterior relative to the glenoid, right? With these fresh right. dislocations, you can actually get an anterior shoulder dislocation reduced in a really kind of easy, non-traumatic way. And then and then this football player wants to hug you afterwards because it feels so much better. With um, the good arm. This, with a good arm, yes. But um, <laughs> maybe even with a bad arm if it feels that good. So, you know, if, if somebody's out the front and um, and they're dislocated, a gentle external rotation of the arm with their arm at the side can sometimes just pop it in. The reason that works is as you're externally rotating your, your forearm, you know, so the hands moving further away from the body, um, keeping the elbow at the side, you're increasing tension across the subscapularis in the front of the shoulder. So as you increase that tension, that almost acts like, you know, it's kind of like making a rubber band really taut. And that will push that humeral head back into the shoulder. So, and I, I've done this field side. When I first was learning about this reduction maneuver, reading about it, I was like, no way. And one of the times I was, I think it was a fellow and I was out at the field and somebody had an obvious shoulder dislocation. I'm like, I'm going to try this because it seems way less traumatic than the usual, you know, what we see in the ER yanking on the arm. And it's, it's fantastic because when they first have dislocated, they haven't gone into spasm yet. And that's when you can get that shoulder in real quick. So that's a great, great trick to know. External rotation real quick. So that is your elbow, the, the arms are at their side. The elbow is, is against the body and the, the hand is at a 90 degree angle. Like you're going to shake someone's hand. That's, and then yeah. you turn it out yeah. to the side so that the yep. arm, the forearm is then parallel to the body instead of perpendicular to it. So that's exactly the you're referring to. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can even put your, you know, you can put your other hand kind of right in front of their shoulder where that, you know, there's going to be a humeral head kind of bulging out mm -hmm. a little bit there and a little bit of gentle pressure um, along with that external rotation um, will oftentimes get a really fresh shoulder dislocation back in. Um, I think elbow dislocations are a little bit harder. Finger dislocations happen in, a, a lot in, in football and in basketball. 
And um, I think I think any physician can reduce a finger dislocation at, at field side or court side as well. Um, it'll be obvious looking at that joint, you know, which uh, which direction that uh, the the phalanx, right? Your your, your finger is dislocated, and it's sometimes it's just a, as easy as pulling, you know, axial traction is kind of pulling it straight back out. Um, but I often teach people to do kind of an up and over. So you, it's almost like you exaggerate the deformity just a tiny bit before you pull that axial traction. A lot of times that'll pop that right back in. But I, but I would caution, uh, you know, the physician if they, um, are trying this and, you know, applying some gentle yet from pressure and it's just not going, then don't force it. Um, if it, if it doesn't pop right in, then, you know, then that's, then that warrants a trip to the ER. And as a disclaimer, this is <laughs> as a disclaimer, and there's a disclaimer at the beginning of the episode, but I'm just going to reiterate this. This is all in the context of your own education. And we are not advocating that you you do this on your patients with unless it's within your training and your comfort level. And yeah. you know, my as an otolaryngologist, <laughs> we're dealing with the finger that's a little bit far from the nose, but yeah. you know, certainly um, these are not unreasonable things to try, but this is for physicians within the context of their education and training. So you absolutely, know, no <laughs> liability for any untoward yes. outcome for you yanking on yeah. someone's finger. And then, uh, I don't know, it comes off or something like that. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Continue. I just had to, I, I felt compelled to throw that in there. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely warranted, but you know, I think if, if it's, if it's totally outside of your, your comfort zone, even if you're, you're, you know, even if you're a full fledged physician, but you're in a different specialty and these things are outside your comfort zone, it's always better to err on the side of safety and send the person if there is any question whatsoever, you know, and, um, sometimes dislocations, we're still talking about dislocations will pop out and pop back in. And one area that is really concerning is the knee because, you know, lots of important vasculature back there that can get injured. And, and it's always nice to go back to basics. Like, is there a pulse? Is there sensation? Can they wiggle their toes? You know, and so if their near vascular exam is is no good um, or different from the other side, you can always just see, oh, I can't quite feel the pulse. Well, I can't feel it on either side. Um, then, it, you know, it, it's a good idea to send that person down to the ER. So gross deformity or mm -hmm. potential damage to the neurovascular bundle. So loss mm -hmm. of function. Um, yep. Uh, or loss of uh, blood supply. So if it's cold, um, loses sensation, loses motor function, uh, loss of pulses, any of that stuff, immediately yeah. to the E. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. You yeah. know, you mentioned the weight bearing. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was carrying my then 11-month-old son down the stairs and slipped on a toy, fell. Oh, boy. Mostly he was fine, but uh, oh, I gosh. did, uh, my elbow oh, landed a little bit on his ankle. Yeah. So ended up on the phone with two of my orthopedic surgery friends and both of them asked the same thing. Well, can he weight bear? Mm -hmm. He doesn't walk. He, he crawls. He doesn't weight bear. <laughs> I can't. Right. 
am I supposed to find out if he's able to weight bear when he's not capable of weight bearing? Like, well, you yeah. might need an x-ray, but sometimes the x-ray doesn't. I mean, as it turns out, we just put him on his, um, we stood him up because he's able to yeah. prove. So we stood him mm-hmm. up, he held himself up, he wasn't guarding, he was standing, he was comfortable, he was fine. And every time we touch it, it would hurt, and that eventually went away. So, you know, yeah, he's yeah. definitely fine, but... <laughs> the, Does he wait there? He's like, well, question. never. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm not expecting him to be able to wait there for another couple of months, because he's not going to walk until then. <laughs> Right, exactly. But but you mentioned that at the beginning. So if they, if they can't weight bear, that's another thing that tells us. So, it, but I wasn't clear. If they can't weight bear, does that mean go to the ER, or does that mean they need to see an orthopedic surgeon in the next couple of days? I I think if there's no deformity and that the neurovascular exam is fine, um, and they're they're having like a, an ankle sprain, you don't know if it's a sprain or is it a hairline fracture, then. If they can't wait there, they may not need to go to the emergency room like that night. Like it's 10 o'clock, football game's ending. Do they need to go wait in the ER uh, for hours and hours? Not necessarily. You know, I think if there's, you tell that person, you know, just uh, wait there is tolerated. If it's not tolerable, then don't do it. Elevate ice and, you know, the whole rice stuff. And if tomorrow morning it's still this painful, then yeah, that maybe you should go to the urgent care, right? Or the ER. Um, or if your primary's office is open, go in and they have an x-ray, take an x-ray. Um, so it's, I think as long as there's no significant, uh, deformity there and the neurovascular exam's okay, then, then it's okay to wait and kind of go in semi-electively. So it sounds like the algorithm would be x-ray. If the x-ray doesn't show a fracture, then continue to rest, ice, elevate, and then mm-hmm. if you continue not to be able to weight bear, then it might be something more soft tissue related for which you would then need the, the help of an orthopedic surgeon. That's that's a good way to, to put it. Yep. Okay. Great. Okay. Well, are, are there any other acute injuries that you think might happen field side that uh, they might call on an unwitting um, pathologist or radiation <laughs> oncologist, someone else that hasn't seen orthopedics since their uh, third year rotation? You know, I, I think those are those are your most common, right? You're going to see the sprains and the strains and um, the things that, you know, people start you know, running around, hair on fire in circles or bones sticking out, like you said, um, and things that are deformed and loss of function, loss of the ability to weight bear. Those are some excellent, uh, excellent comprehensive rules. I feel like that should be in a class in medical school. but uh, Oh, it should be on a poster. It, it may be, yeah. <laughs> And that's the point of this podcast, because we all have yeah. these few things that we say over and over that really every every physician should know. It would be beneficial for every physician to know rather than memorizing the steps of the Krebs cycle. All right, yep, but now yep. to uh, common consults. So, so let's talk about some of the more common consults that you see and how you like to start your work up. So, sure. um, so let's say you're... you're um, a family physician or an internal medicine or someone who doesn't have ready access to orthopedic surgeons. So what were, what are some, what's some advice that you would give to practitioners in those situations that do see some of the issues that you see? 
Well, um, I I can definitely go into some of the more common things that the the primary care or the family physician is going to see, but um, maybe I'll start with um, something specific to the shoulder because this is something I see a lot of. I'm I'm considered a shoulder specialist, and so um, it's definitely this is something that's like in my wheelhouse and at the forefront of my mind. Um, shoulder pain is super common. And, um, as we get older and get into the late thirties, forties and fifties and beyond, um, rotator cuff often becomes a concern. So some of the conditions that we see in and around the shoulder having to do with the cuff bursitis and rotator cuff tendonitis go hand in hand. People are always worried like, Hey, do I have a rotator cuff tear? Um, so shoulder pain is super common. And, um, I think what sometimes the, the primary care doctors don't realize and, and not by any fault of theirs, it's just, um, exposure to care of the rotator cuff, you know, um, is that not everybody needs an MRI. Um, I, I think that, and, and same goes for the knees. I see a lot of, you know, knee pain, arthritic knees where they, you know, they come in, they've already gotten the MRI. And it'll say there's a meniscus tear or the shoulder MRI will say, oh, there's some partial tearing or there might be a rotator cuff tear. Um, And people come in freaked out thinking, oh, my God, I need to have surgery. Um, When it comes to the shoulder, for example, uh, you look at you look at increasing age by decade and the percentage of people who have completely asymptomatic shoulders that have a rotator cuff tear goes up. And, you know, when you get into like your 70s, 80s, it's like, it's something like half, half of these people with no shoulder pain are walking around with, with a rotator cuff tear and, and they have no symptoms. Um, And so it's not, you know, getting an MRI is appropriate when indicated, but sometimes if, if somebody presents with shoulder pain and that's the first thing that they, they go to. Um, it can produce some unnecessary panic in the patient thinking, oh gosh, this is torn. I need to have it fixed because not all rotator cuffs need to be fixed. Um, and kind of along the similar lines, um, knee arthritis, people have knee pain, they get an x-ray, maybe it's arthritic. Um, and the, the next go-to a lot of times before they come to see the orthopedic surgeon is an MRI, um, what I think a lot of people don't realize is that when you develop arthritis in a joint, especially the in the knee, you you normally have, if you have pristine cartilage, it is smooth. There's a very low amount of friction and your joints are meant to glide on each other like ice on ice. But once that arthritic process starts and you start getting flaking and fraying and divots in that surface of the cartilage, they're going to rough each opposite end up and this this little innocent bystander meniscus that's stuck in the middle that's of a softer consistency it is going to get beat up and so if someone's arthritic enough 100 percent of the time there is going to be some kind of meniscus tearing in there and so you get an mri and says oh my god the meniscus is torn i gotta have it fixed i need a knee scope and a meniscectomy and that is just not necessarily the case. The arthritis kind of trumps the meniscus tear. And so um, if someone comes in to see me, for example, they haven't had that MRI, but they're thinking, gosh, do I need one? And I get some standing films where we're seeing what gravity is doing to the knees. 
And I see that that joint space is almost completely gone because they've worn away their articular cartilage. I am not getting an MRI. I'm going to treat that arthritis. I'm going to treat that arthritis symptomatically. How do you do that? So, so um, we look at their range of motion. I look and see how much swelling there is in the knee. Maybe they need to have some of the fluid aspirated or drawn off. Um, they may be a candidate for a cortisone injection if they're having an acute flare-up and they're painful and they're swollen. Um, they may need anti-inflammatories, physical therapy, um, maybe chondroitin, you know, glucosamine chondroitin could help some of these people. Wait a second. We were speaking <laughs> about glucosamine beforehand. And yes, we were. I thought we I'd were. throw it out there. So, so yeah, so <laughs> dropping that. Um, and it's and, you're welcome and, for the transition. <laughs> very smoothly done. Uh, and what we we're talking about just to because I, I like to bring everything back to otolaryngology because this is my podcast and it's all about me. Um, and you're allowed that, to, yeah. <laughs> that um, it seems like glucosamine is like the lipoflavonoid of tinnitus. And so, you know, the the tinnitus is the hearing a sound that's not an organized sound like a hallucination, but you're hearing a sound that nobody else can hear. And, and it can be very distracting. And so there are lots of, there are a lot of snake oil. There's a lot of snake oil mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. um, and one of these things that, that a lot of people advocate is, is lipoflavonoids. And the placebo-controlled trials just aren't there. But something like tinnitus is very, just like pain, very, very susceptible to the placebo effect. So yeah. should I be recommending this benign entity, this benign substance, I guess, to, to my patients when um, I know that if they're going to feel better, it's because of the placebo, or do I not recommend it because the science isn't there? And it's, I'm just yeah. almost do, uh, like fooling them into thinking that they're getting better when they're not, but really it doesn't matter because so it's a subjective sensation. So, and right. I kind of jumped the gun on, on, on the description because what we had talked about beforehand is you, what you were saying was the data just isn't there for the glucosamine. And I, I see it on the counter in my parents' house. So they're taking <laughs> it. Should I, should I tell them stop taking it because it just doesn't help? Well, you know, it's it's not that there's no evidence for it. It's the evidence is not super solid, strong, watertight, right? Um, it, there there have been studies, and there may be a subset of patients who have moderate arthritic pain, and they take glucosamine, chondroitin, chondroitin glucosamine, and they may have reportable pain relief. But you know, the study sizes are are not quite big enough. The data isn't quite there. However, that this is how I approach it in my practice because I get asked that question a lot. Do, do you think I should take this supplement? Well, I will say that glucosamine in particular is fairly benign, right? If you buy a bottle of it, you're probably not going to have any significant side effects. You're not going to die. You're not going to get sick. Um, it's, it's fairly benign. And I will tell my patients, you know, it's worth a try. If you want to give it a try, keep a journal, take it consistently. Don't add in something else that might be helping your joint pain and maybe do it for a week, maybe do it for two weeks or even a month and then stop it and see if you can feel a difference, right? 
And so if this person tries it for a month and they stop and they're like, oh my gosh, the pain came right back. I didn't do anything else different. Um, it wasn't a change in the weather or whatnot. Then I'll say, you know, it's probably not doing any harm. And if you are subjectively feeling better, then go ahead. And, and there is some data. It's just not, it's not super strong, right? And, and so- There's enough money in these, sub, in, these, in these substances that I think the research may be there but they don't uh-huh. want to publish it because it's not in their self-interest. So they'll publish <laughs> the anecdotal stuff. I, I mean, listen, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, but I think if you follow the money, you get the answer. And these, mm-hmm. there's so much money in these supplements that, uh, that I'm sure these companies have done some studies that compare them to placebo and they just mm-hmm. found out that they're not there. And because they funded the study, they don't have to publish it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I'm, I'm sure it exists, but I'm just it, you know, balloon and I'm sorry, oh, that's all right. but, um, you know, and then the, the other thing that you and I talked about earlier as well is, is that because these are over the counter, they are not regulated. Right. By, um, yeah. yeah. So, um, you don't know the quality of what you're getting. Like you can go and do a GNC or go to Costco and whatnot. And, um, it, it, there's there's not really a governing body that's going to say, hey, every, every dose must contain exactly how much of this glucosamine chondroitin. Um, so there is some inconsistency out there. And you see that with a ton of other supplements, over-the-counter remedies. Um, I have patients asking me about turmeric, right? Because turmeric is thought to have some anti-inflammatory properties. But um how, how do you make sure you're getting a consistent dose? How do you make sure you're not getting too much? And, and I tell them that I'm like, that's the challenge, you know? Um, and, and sometimes when they ask me about the benefits of supplements, I don't have a lot of solid research. You know, I think it's, this is another kind of a little veering off topic a little bit, but I think it's okay for physicians to say, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know how this, how well this is going to work for you. Oh yeah. And, and that's so, a much yeah. better alternative to just making something up. Yeah, generally not good to make stuff up in medicine. Yeah, there are studies that show that turmeric is better if you sprinkle it on French toast than regular toast because the uh, the egg whites <laughs> help it to distribute into the body. <laughs> I, I find <laughs> my partners it's and I sometimes, sometimes say <laughs> that the best way to build a practice is to make stuff up. Now, none of us do it, right? <laughs> really, 100%. None of us do it. We just were, but yeah. but you know, we hear the things that other physicians sometimes tell patients and they just seem so outlandish, but so convincing. Like they say these things, such great conviction and people (laughs) sometimes just eat that up. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, it's much better than my answer, which is, well, you know, I'm not sure. Like it could be this and it could be that, but like, you know, I just, the way that I think, because that's just the way that I think and the way that I talk, right? Like I, we don't know for sure. We're not positive. We'll see what happens, right? Like that's just a lot of the time how we have to speak as physicians. It's much yep. easier, to, you know, people will be much more receptive if you speak with great conviction. And we're just mm-hmm. stuck in, in this position where we can't because yeah. we can't. Yeah. Right. But I like what you did with the glucosamine. You, you, made, you made it like you, you, tr- you make sure that the patient cuts out as many variables as they can when they try right. it, they don't do anything differently. Mm-hmm. 
Don't do, mm-hmm. don't change your routine. Don't do, just make sure it's this one thing. So at least you have as few variables as possible when you're trying to figure out if this thing works for you. Yeah. Like, like don't, don't start it with Celebrex, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> don't start it with a prescription anti-inflammatory because then how do you know? Is it yeah. the prescription? Is it? No, no, no. It's definitely the tumor. Yeah. It's not, you know, yeah. cause Merck's, right. Merck's out to get me and the tumor, <laughs> salesman that there's no money to be made in turmeric so he is definitely not interested in, in <laughs> definitely has the turmeric salesman definitely has my interest in mind and is it okay yeah. that my bowel movements are now bright orange because of all the turmeric <laughs> it's so colorful <laughs> um so are there any other consults that 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 you want to bring up that you think would be worthwhile to discuss or you that know, was the those- like just those are the major ones that I see as don't a, just yeah. reflexively get the MRI. Yeah, I think that's that. Those are among some of the most common common referrals that that I I get just by the nature of my subspecialty, um, and that's something I I commonly see. So I, I remember a few years ago there was an article in a major journal. I don't remember if it was the New England Journal of Medicine or whether it was JAMA but it was very inflammatory about arthroscopy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, Do you know that was, the article um, that I'm... Yeah. Yeah. That was um, New England Journal. So, so. The, the takeaway I thought was mm-hmm. arthroscopy doesn't work. Right. I think that that's, that's why it caused a lot of controversy, but I mean, that just can't be true or it might be true. So we don't do any arthroscopy. So mm-hmm. I, I, I really, you know, I didn't delve any d- deeper into that uh, being out of my specialty, but, but I think a lot of people came away from that saying, thinking that. So right. what can you tell us about that article and what the, the, the orthopedic surgeons who did a fellowship in arthroscopy, what is her mm-hmm. perspective? So, um, you know, this is kind of an extension of what we were just talking about with, um, like when, when people with knee arthritis get that MRI and they're like, oh my God, I've got a meniscus tear. I got to have arthroscopy um, and fix that meniscus tear or shave it. Um, the, the real problem there is the arthritis. And that's, you know, and that's exactly why I say, you know what, we got to treat your arthritis, not your meniscus. The meniscus is an innocent bystander. It got kind of beat up, but your symptoms are due to arthritis. And, um, and so, you know, I think that um, there, there had been a lot of cases where a lot of these folks were getting scoped and, um, and, they, and they don't necessarily get better. If the, if the root problem is that they are arthritic, then going in there and cleaning up the, the frayed meniscus that got beat up because there's arthritis around it isn't going to do a whole lot. Um, and, and I actually find myself talking patients out of surgery quite a bit for that reason. Um, and so, you know, this, this particular study is from, from the New England journals in 2008, and they, they looked at patients with arthritis of the knee and the, and basically they, they said that, you know, arthroscopic, like widespread arthroscopic treatment for arthritis of the knee is not warranted, you know, and, and some physicians will will say, okay, but, you know, they may have arthritis, they may have this beat up degenerative type of meniscus tear, but there is a component 
of that tear that is flipping around and it's causing the knee to have a mechanical symptom. So it's like the knee's getting stuck or the knee is getting locked up. Um, and if, if that particular kind of tear is what we call a, a big bucket handle tear, then that may be a case where you would scope an arthritic knee. You know, it's a big, huge, giant chunk of the meniscus flipped into a whole nother zip code of the knee. Then, yeah, we can go in and we can scope them. We can resolve some of those mechanical symptoms. Now, this person may no longer have mechanical symptoms from that giant piece of meniscus that's that's in the wrong place, but it doesn't mean that they won't have popping and catching because they're still arthritic. They still have these uneven surfaces and you know, you kind of walk around you, the, those those ridged surfaces, rough surfaces may kind of jump the track on each other. And that's going to give you a mechanical sensation and pain. And that you can't take away with arthroscopy. And so, you know, I think this study, that that's kind of the takeaway point is that an arthritic knee does not need, does not absolutely need to have a scope. And in most cases, should, you should probably kind of stay away from a scope with few exceptions. Um, you know, and, and I think for the casual observer, people who have kind of maybe heard about the article in passing, it kind of comes across as like, knee scopes are bad, don't get knee scopes. But it's, it, you know, there are a couple of more nuances there that um, warrant attention. and. And I talk to my patients about that all the time. Yeah, that sounds like where I would have gotten my medical information, which would have been like CBS. Um, <laughs> their, their, their tagline would be, doctors do millions of scopes a year, and this article says knee scopes don't work. But yeah. the fact of the matter is, if you take a large group of people with arthritis of the knee, and you perform a sham scope on some and a real scope on the other, then you won't find a benefit because most of those patients with arthritis, you're kind of missing the point. But there yeah. are some select patients in there for which it's appropriate, but in a large yeah. group like this, the statistical significance of those are gonna get washed out by the, no pun intended, but washed out by the, um, the, the large cohort for whom you're saying, yeah, mm -hmm. it is inappropriate for those patients to be scoped. Right. That's exactly right. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I, I'm the, the next question I'm completely stealing from another podcast that I heard <laughs> you on. Um, and, and I thought it led to an interesting, um, interesting discussion, especially since you have, uh, you have a son, I have two sons. Um, they're mine are not quite old enough for sports, but my older one climbs everything. So we're definitely going to get him into gymnastics soon. Um, <laughs> what are sports that you would steer your children away from <laughs> the frequency <laughs> of injury from the injuries that I, you see? Because I, I, I heard from an orthopedic surgeon in my hospital, he just happened to mention in passing, he thinks people who ski should get separate health insurance because he sees <laughs> so many ski injuries. So what, yeah. are, what are your thoughts on sports like that? You know, um, I, I, and you, you may have heard on the other podcast, I kind of like jumped to, to an answer really quickly, but, and, and admittedly I backtracked a little bit because, um, and, and you know, I'll, I'll tell you what that answer was, but I, you know, I immediately said, well, I don't think I'd let my son play football. 
Um, but then as I was talking, I actually thought about it a little bit more. And, and my son's only six, so he's not playing tackle football. And I don't think he'll end up playing tackle football. But um, he, like we all, we ski. I snowboard. Um, it, he skied. He started when he was um, three and a half. And, and like last year, he did his first black diamond, right? And so he, I, I think at some point, if he keeps progressing, he's going to be one of those the kids out there that are going to be good and going down some some steep things and and you know if he's like most boys he'll be jumping off of things and um (laughs) it's good to hear you're gonna have two of them (laughs) right um but you know and so I think maybe it was a little bit unfair of me to just say hey I don't think you should ever play football but I let the kids ski you know um and you can get some pretty devastating injuries and he also plays soccer. I take care of, of, of a ton of ACL injuries from soccer. Um, my and maybe it's just my patient population. But I do more ACLs from soccer than I do from football. Um, and so you know he's he's an avid little soccer player. And and there's also a, a decent concussion risk in soccer. So you know all all of these sports are going to carry certain inherent risks with them. And, and I don't think even as an orthopedic surgeon and a parent, I can say your kids should not play football or no, your kids no, shouldn't I'm not speak, asking right? you to, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> to say what other people should do. I'm just right. wondering what is going to happen in your house. And I, I think my wife and I will see what the boys ultimately are interested in, but my yeah. wife and I are, are the same page because of um, because of the CTE that yep. uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy that yep. football and, <clears throat> and you do see concussions in, in soccer, you do see concussions in other sports. And, you know, there was, yeah. there was this, uh, famous race car driver that had, uh, I think he ultimately died of a, of a head injury while wearing his helmet while skiing off piste, um, yeah. a couple of years ago. Uh, so there are, but but just the incidence of, of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, you know, yeah. and football and I played rugby poorly for two years in college. Um, and so I'd be concerned about, you know, any, anything where you're running headlong at the yep. other person. Yeah. But, but, yeah. but that's yeah. more like from a neurosurgeon or neuro, a neurologist, you know, what, what you're saying is from an orthopedic surgeon's perspective where, where you see, you know, broken bones and dislocations, there really isn't mm-hmm. a specific sport that you would say, no, I wouldn't let my son do this because of the ortho, because of the risk. That being said, you're also, you, you were, uh, was it, you worked in a snowboard store or you were a snowboard instructor? What was this? So, so there's a part of your yeah. life, that, uh, you know, so you're, you're an athletic individual to begin with. Yeah. I, um, my first job out of college, I worked for a small snowboarding company and this was in uh, this would have been in the mid to late nineties when, um, no mid, who are we kidding? It was, it was the mid nineties. Um, so I, I was fresh out of college and, um, sort of didn't, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I liked to snowboard a lot. And so I worked for a small snowboard company. Um, and I did marketing and sales. There were only a couple employees there. So we kind of all did everything. And so I basically, you know, I worked in the office and, and I was uh, kind of that, that sales internal sales person and, um, and was liaison to the shops that carried our boards. But part of what I did for work is I got to 
travel around and go to contests to hand out stickers because that was marketing too. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that was that was a little detour. That was definitely a whole lot of fun. But um, you know, um, yeah, I I have been a long time snowboarders, and 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 there are definitely injuries that go along with that for sure. Um, one example is um, a personal one. I was, um, for lack of better terminology, hucking myself off of a ginormous jump. Um, and I'm in my early 20s, so <laughs> I think I'm still invincible. Yeah. Um, I would absolutely never do that now. I'm, I'm, my skills are, are declining every year. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of didn't quite make the transition uh, to, to land at the appropriate place on the landing. So the next time I went up, I'm like, I am going to bomb this jump. And, and I missed the landing because now I overshot it. And I remember being up in the air thinking, Oh, am I allowed to curse on the show? Um, uh, I, I prefer not. The, okay. I said, Oh snap, <laughs> but it wasn't really that. As I yes. was up in the air, I started to fall backwards and I landed squarely on my tailbone and sat on, had to go down on a sled. Um, I had a coccyx fracture. I couldn't stand up straight. And then I sat on a donut pillow for six months. So, you know, as, as kind of a brief aside, yeah, there are some pretty significant things that can happen in snowboarding too, especially when you are landing from 20 feet in the air. Did you, did you, <laughs> did you get an MRI? Um, I didn't get an MRI. They, oh, okay. they, um, they got an x-ray, you know, and I, I was near you know, and, and it basically came down to a, a little coccyx fracture that eventually went on to heal, but I went everywhere with my donut pillow. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> my, my last question is what exercise recommendations would you have physicians give to their patients either common exercises that they're doing that maybe are more prone to injury or some important exercises for injury pre pre prevention. For instance, uh, Seth Grossman's an orthopedic spine surgeon. He was on the show a few episodes ago, and he said that everybody should be doing the Superman before they go to bed. Why? Because we're mm -hmm. all such, you know, in, in um, you know, sitting at our computer desks and hunched over yep. and at our phones and getting texts neck and all the rest of it, that in order to the exercise, I think it's called the posterior chain, we should all be doing the, the Superman um, before bed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what, yeah. what type of uh, exercises do you recommend or stretches or anything that you recommend for us to, to, to recommend to our patients for injury prevention? You know, I, I talk to my patients a lot about um, what I call the four pillars of a well-balanced exercise program. Um, sometimes people, when they want to go get into shape, you know, the first thing that pops in their mind is like, oh, I better go out for a run. You know, they haven't worked out in ages. They go out for a run. Um, but, no, you know, squats, deadlifts, the cleaning yeah, or definitely. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I, I like to tell people you got to have these four things in a well-balanced fashion so that you don't get hurt. Right. And, and it should be a combination of strength, cardio, flexibility, and mind body, you know, and, and, and people might poo poo the mind body, but I think it's an important part of the, what, what I call the four pillars of a good, well-balanced exercise program. And so, you know, having those four components is one thing that's important, having good prep, like giving yourself extra time to warm up, stretch, cool down 
before and after playing sports or, or doing your exercises is, is another good way to avoid injury. And certainly if we're talking about body parts, I think the core is, is often neglected and there is um, a misconception, I think out there in the public that um, having a good strong core means doing 5 million sit-ups, you know, and, and everyone always concentrates on the abs, but yeah, there is that whole posterior side the uh, that is is an, a crucial component component of the core, and so yeah, I think doing the Superman every night at bedtime, maybe doing a plank, um, is is a nice foundational thing that you can do to avoid extremity back injuries, core injuries, but also extremity injuries. Having a good strong core, having good hip uh, hip stability. But they're not putting pictures of anybody's posterior chain on the covers of magazines. No, no, it's just not as sexy as the abs. I'm sorry. (laughs) Right. But what about, um, so you mentioned stretching and warming up. Do you recommend stretching before exercise? You know, I think that, um, there is some evidence that, uh, more dynamic stretching that incorporates movement, um, is a little bit better in that scenario. We're kind of combining your warm up and the stretch. Um, you don't want to stretch cold muscles. You don't want to stretch cold tendons. Um, and so, you know, like when you're, it, um, like a walking squat or a walking lunge, right? So you're doing yeah. a little bit of stretch, but you're also moving the joints at the same time. Um, you know, maybe walking and kind of doing the hamstring extensions where you're kind of kicking, a, kicking in front of you as you're taking steps, um, side lunges, things like that, um, uh, tend to be a little bit more effective. Great. Well, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to discuss that we haven't brought up today? I think this was a pretty comprehensive conversation. Yeah, no, um, I, I think we covered it. So you, you have a very interesting blog where you cover lots of different, uh, subject matter. And so Mm -hmm. where, where can people find you? So, um, my blog is at www.nancygenshipleymd.com. And that is the world's longest URL. And so, <laughs> so actually nancymd.com also goes to the same place, bonus. Um, and my blog is on there. I focus on musculoskeletal wellness. Um, it is a wide range of topics, um, but I generally will speak to injury prevention and, and other um, muscle, joint, bone topics of interest. I am also on Facebook as Nancy MD. I'm on Instagram and Twitter as uh, underscore Nancy MD. Um, so you can find me on any of those platforms. I, I talk about not just the orthopedic aspect of things on some of these other platforms, but just kind of life as a female mom, orthopedic surgeon, aging along with everybody else um talk a lot about just just what life is like um as an as an orthopod as well well thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today it has been a pleasure thank you so much for having me that was dr bradley block at the physician's guide to doctoring find all previous episodes on itunes stitcher google podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and write us a review You can also visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash physician's guide to doctoring. If you are interested in being a guest or have a question for a prior guest, send a message or post a comment.